Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, the happy pair, Ireland's celebrity vegan twins, Dave and Steve Flynn, on their happy green lives. And as COVID restrictions come to an end and we start planning our holidays, how do we do so sustainably? We'll be exploring the world of ecotourism. We'd also love to hear from you. Of course, you can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. And it's time to head down to earth. We'll begin with this. Yes, it's our brand new regular feature we're calling the Weekly Planet with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. So every week, Craig is helping me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. And the first big news story he's brought with me this week is about the greenhouse gas methane, which has been in the news a lot this week. An article in Nature says that scientists at the U.S. National and Oceanic Atmospheric Administration are really concerned about what they call dangerously fast growth of atmospheric methane. And it's not only causing climate change, but also caused by climate change. So Craig, let me get this straight. In Ireland, we think of methane as coming from belching cows. But of course, methane also comes from natural gas or fossil gas. And then there's this natural source of methane, which is also coming from underneath the ground. And as frozen ground starts to thaw because of climate change, more of this natural methane is coming out too, creating this sort of natural feedback loop. So why is methane in the news so much this week? Yeah. Hi, Cara. Yes, well, it is a real concern because, of course, uh, methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas even than carbon dioxide. Some estimates say it's 28 times more potent, uh, in other words, more effective, sadly, at causing global warming. Other estimates say it could be up to 80 times more potent than uh, carbon dioxide. And there has been this kind of rapid and mysterious uptick uh, from about 2007 onwards. And scientists are a bit confused as to why it's happening. It could be, uh, as you say, that it could be growing livestock herds. And we're all very familiar with hearing about how methane is associated with those cows. But, you know, it could also be the rapidly expanding oil and natural gas production, uh, for example, particularly kind of fracking in the United States and oil and gas, leaky oil and gas facilities in Russia. It could be rising emissions from landfill. Um, it could be increasing activity for microbes in wetlands. And that's exactly the point you were saying there, that as you see more warming, sadly, that leads to more uh, activity by microbes in wetlands, which then feeds back and releases methane and causes more warming. So that's a real concern. And the truth is probably it's a bit of all of those. Uh, but the indications are that the most of the warming that's been caused over the last 10 years, most, most of the extra uh, methane going into the atmosphere is probably primarily from oil and gas facilities and these wetlands. Yeah, I remember in, in 2016, there was a neighborhood outside Los Angeles where there was a methane leak for months and it released the equivalent uh, yeah. emissions of driving 7 million cars every single day and over 3,000 families had to be relocated. So these, these gas wells, if they're not taken care of, they seem to kind of release all this methane gas just willy-nilly like into the atmosphere and nobody seems to care about it. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think it's kind of uh, shocking, really, that the oil and gas industry has been so slow to try and address this and politicians with it. I mean, you might remember a lot of talk about methane at the recent COP26 meeting in Glasgow, Cara, uh, and that's when President Biden showed up and he announced this new global methane pledge, uh, got more than 100 countries to sign up to it and committing to cut emissions by 30 percent from 2020 levels by 2030. I remember at the time, you know, I was in Glasgow and I remember sort of someone saying, oh, this is great. This is us getting the low hanging fruit. And I, I always thought it was kind of ironic, really, that at the same meeting we were being told that this was the last chance to tackle climate change. You know, finally, people were getting around to what they were calling the, the low hanging fruit, which I thought was odd. But, you know, it is the case that actually moving fast as fast as possible on trying to uh, cut leaks uh, of methane from oil and gas facilities is one of the best things we can do to try and stop warming this decade. And we know or try and slow down warming this decade, I should say. And we know that that's really what this is about, all about to try and stop those positive feedback loops. But yeah. 
Go on. Yeah, I was really surprised that the Environmental Defense Fund this week announced that Biden's new plans to deal with these leaking wells are currently excluding almost 70% of the wells that are leaking. So it looks like he's not clamping down on these methane leaks in, in the way that he said he would at COP. What do you think is going on there? Do you think he's been hijacked by vested interests? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? And you know what? It wasn't just the Environmental Defence Fund that said that or kind of uh, hippies like you and me, Carla. You know, what's really interesting that this week, uh, big investors, so Wellington Management and Legal in general, uh, with trillions of dollars of assets in their management, uh, they said Joe Biden's crackdown on methane pollution was not strong enough. And as you say, it's over half of oil and gas facilities in the United States Uh, do not come under that because they are considered too small. But of course, it's a lot of these really small facilities that have some of the worst leaks. So it's a problem. It does seem that although we've had these commitments from President Joe Biden to try and tackle methane, you know, there's real questions as to whether that's going to be enough to tackle what is a a really big uh, area of concern around global warming, which perhaps just hasn't had enough attention in the past. Yeah, so more public pressure on that one. The next breaking story you've brought me this week is something that everyone is sick of, which is plastics. And maybe what you've brought me, though, is a bit of good news that some microbes have been discovered that can actually eat certain plastics and could potentially help us break down plastic waste or even allow us to create more high-quality recycled plastics. Now, this story sounds a little bit sci-fi, to me, and I'm not sure how I feel about microbes kind of munching their way around the world. Is it something to be welcomed or worried about? Well, I mean, I think it is something to be welcomed, but with a heck of a lot of caveats, I would say, for exactly the kind of reasons you're saying. I mean, it has been talked about for a few years now how there there are are sort of potentially enzymes that can eat plastics, and that will help curb our waste problem. And uh, this week, there has been a fair bit of attention about how there's even sort of more have evolved now, or been even helped by scientists to evolve, if you like, at times to try and eat particular types of plastic. Um, But I think you're right to be sceptical, Kawa, because uh, the scale of the problem is just so colossal. I mean, as you probably know now, uh, the out in the Pacific Ocean, there's an expanse of water that's more than twice the size of France, uh, littered with plastic waste weighing at least 79,000 tonnes. And the plastic in the ocean is the, is the one that gets a lot of attention. But that's a tiny, tiny proportion. Uh, some people estimate less than 1% of all, obviously all the plastics going into the environment. And the real problem with plastics is they don't, uh, they break down into smaller, smaller pieces but they're almost impossible to properly recycle. And so even when you hear people talking about recycling plastics, um, actually every time that happens, they break down in in quality. And that means that there's only so many times that can happen that they can be recycled. And so uh, there is a real problem here. There's there's also the issue that as plastics get ever smaller, uh, they shed into tiny microplastics and even nanoplastics. Um, Did you know that a huge source of plastic pollution is that coming off from car tires, for example? So I think although probably there's going to be a role to play for these kind of microbes uh, to destroy some of our plastics, it's only going to be a tiny proportion, sadly. And, And I sort of have come to the point where I think we've just got to kind of get out of plastics. And I know that seems mad, but, you know, 20 years ago. It seemed mad to talk about getting out of fossil fuels. And and now we have a global agreement that pretty much says we've got to do that. Yeah, I think there's a place for this. And I thought the article in The Guardian that talked about this, the science was really interesting, that there's now this center for enzyme innovation in the UK. And, you know, this idea we have enzymes in our stomachs that break down food and we can have enzymes that do the same thing with plastic. And and there is an opportunity if you think about the need for medical grade plastics, which, of course, in this in this COVID world, we're using more and more of these kind of medical plastics for COVID testing and everything. So if we want to recycle these plastics uh, and not turn them into kind of low-grade items like flower pots or, you know, mats that we rub our feet on and actually be able to turn them into higher quality products as part of this new circular economy, we have to have these kind of enzymes to be able to do that and, and break these higher quality plastics down into better products. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but I think we mustn't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, plastics as we know of them now, they're made from fossil fuels. They're a byproduct of the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, if we've got to get off the fossil fuel hook, if we've got to stop burning and using fossil fuels, we're going to have to stop making plastics uh, from fossil fuels. And, you know, there's some estimates that if we 
try and end uh, phase out fossil fuel use for all those other things that we know we need to do for heating for lighting for transport and so on actually plastics production becomes an ever increasing proportion of the amount of fossil fuels being used even perhaps up to a quarter or a third of all fossil fuel use by the 2050s and get this Carla in in just last year a report in the US found that the US plastics industry alone releases 232 million tons of greenhouse gases every year that's the equivalent of 116 coal-fired power plants so I don't think there's been enough attention in just the huge role that actually the plastic industry plays on climate change and too often plastic pollution is seen as a separate issue to climate change. So you're telling me just like there's no silver bullet, there's no silver enzyme to get us out of this crisis, am I right? Sadly not. I mean, as ever, as you and I always know, I'm sure these things have a role to play, but no silver enzymes, no. Okay, so finally, a dog story. I know you have a gorgeous dog that you love, and I actually have two that I inherited this year from my father that I'm trying to love. Lots of people got dogs during COVID, and of course, we love taking them out into nature reserves and parks, but it turns out that this could be bad for plants and bad for biodiversity. So go on, Craig, tell me what my darling little pooches might be doing to harm nature. Yes, well, you met, uh, I think, Barney, my lovely Labrador, Barney, had a fantastic time meeting you in Dublin last summer, Cara, and, uh, you know, we all love him dearly. Uh, he's very important. And as you rightly say, dogs have been so important to people, particularly during lockdown. And of course, we often think about the sort of unsightliness, if you like, of dog mess being left behind. And we want people to pick that up just because it doesn't look nice or the dangers of stepping it and so on. But actually, uh, there's more and more research now in a new study that's been out this week that suggests that taking your dog for a walk in a nature reserve can harm the biodiversity. And, you know, you might think, oh, that's because they might disturb ground nesting birds. Well, yes, that's a problem if that happens. But actually, this is much more uh, about, you know, it's the feces in the dog poo and the dog wee essentially uh, putting excess nitrogen and phosphorus into the ecosystem. So as probably people know, you know, phosphorus and nitrogen are essential components of fertilizers. So essentially, the fact is, if you don't take your dog poo away with you when you go, if you leave it behind in the nature reserve, it could actually change uh, the ecosystem by over fertilizing it. And you might think, well, why is that a problem? You know, surely it's good to fertilize plants. But the fact is, a lot of our nature reserves are all about trying to get, have a, a range of uh, species, a big, rich uh, range and, and diversity of species and actually you get diversity when there's a lack of nutrients when you have lots of plants trying to compete against each other for the few nutrients are there and that's when you get many species if actually you over fertilize uh, an area of land uh, that's when you get essentially a monoculture of just a handful of uh, grass species so this is really interesting this study and concerning it's basically saying you know make sure your dog uh, doesn't leave too much of the poo behind, which means it's us owners, actually, house dog owners. It's just a, another reminder about that we've got to pick it up and take it away with us. This was an article in New Scientist, and I thought the numbers were actually really shocking. If you're if you're a farmer, you'll be able to understand this, that they estimated that dogs bring in five kilograms of phosphorus per hectare per year and 11 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year into these nature reserves, which is, you know, significant in terms of how they're fertilizing or over-fertilizing the natural environment. And then they went on to say that if if owners actually picked up all of the dog poo alone, uh, that that would reduce the nitrogen input by more than half and almost eliminate the phosphorus input. So just this simple act could really help protect these these natural reserves. And I think when we're out in nature with our dogs, we're thinking, oh, it's, they're not doing this on the footpath. It's not getting in any way. Maybe, you know, maybe it's OK. It's natural. Um, but it turns out it's not at all. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is a real problem when you're talking about big numbers. I mean, we're talking about potentially nature reserves here that have a lot of people visiting them, particularly those on the urban fringe uh, in and around towns and cities and so on. Those are the ones to worry about. I mean, admittedly, you know, if you're if you're in a really remote area, it's not going to be such a problem, is it? But if uh, if you're talking around our suburban nature reserves, uh, that are so important, so important for people's physical and mental health during uh, particularly during lockdown as well. 
so actually, if we want to protect these nature reserves, that's that's incredibly important that people do pick up uh, the poo and take it away with them. So another reason to bin your dog's poo, even if you're off the beaten path. So thanks for that rundown of the Planet's Weekly Big News, Craig. I'm really hoping that you're going to bring me some less stinky news next week. Is that a possibility? I'll try my best, Carl. <laughs> After the break, we'll find out how to plan holidays that don't harm the planet. Down to Earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows. We did uh, cloth nappies for 60 or 70 percent of the time with the smallers, and it's a bit of work. You are more intimately aware of poo. Obviously, with disposable nappies and nappy changing, you're not, it's not like you can't avoid the poo, but you kind of tend to. Do a little wipe, then just fold it all away, tuck it into a bag, and it's gone. It's gone. What got us into that is the waste. Like, it's just watching the bin lorry. The black bin used, black bin used to be emptied a few times a year in our house before children arrived. And then when the nappies first came, you'd see the black bin. You'd see the, the machine almost straining to lift the bin. It seems we can't get away from poo stories today, but you're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and that was comedian Cullum O'Regan speaking about one of the ways that he tries to be more environmentally friendly. He'll actually be joining us in a few minutes with his thoughts on travel and the return of live events. But before that, do you consider yourself eco-friendly but struggle to find ways in which to travel and go on holiday sustainably? I know I do. Hopefully we will be finding some answers today. I'm joined by Nick Hall from the Digital Tourism Think Tank, Siobhan Dolan-Clancy, who is the founder and CEO of SDC Business Consulting, and Roisin Finlay of Sustainable Travel Ireland. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Great to be here. Great to have you. Hi, Cara. Lovely to be here. Great to have you guys. Roisin, I'm going to start with you. Your organization was launched as Ecotourism Ireland way back in 2009, but rebranded about three years ago as Sustainable Travel Ireland. So those concepts, sustainable travel, ecotourism, a lot of people might not be familiar with them, or is there a difference between them? Maybe you can explain what they mean and if they're different from each other. I suppose they're they're not formal definitions, but traditionally ecotourism would have been that very kind of nature-based tourism. So staying on camping and glamping sites or doing nature-based activities. Um, and those businesses that operated sustainably in, in that space were real trailblazers. I mean, they were the, the companies that were harvesting water and, you know, doing all sorts of great things. Um, but they're, they're very small and niche. So our aim was to when we when we rebranded to Sustainable Travel Ireland was to bring that kind of message of sustainability to the whole of the tourism industry. Because the reality is the, the, the large hotels and the bigger businesses have a much bigger impact. But it was for them to start absorbing some of that ethos and changing their ways so that you could have a more sustainable holiday. So how is the Irish tourism sector actually integrating this concept of either sustainable travel or even ecotourism into it? Um, I think... If I'm honest, I think everybody wants to do it. You know, all of the businesses that we talk to want to do it, but they're not quite sure how to get started. Um, so sustainable tourism, like the real definition is much broader than just your eco footprint, your environmental footprint. But obviously the environmental footprint is really, really important. Um, but sustainable tourism really embraces that idea that, you know, the money spent in tourism is money that's spent for good or can be money that's spent for good. So it's a way to spread wealth around regions, around countries, around the planet. Um, it's a way to, like tourism is a way to have cultural engagement, understanding of other cultures. So it's, it's a really important um, industry apart from just going on holidays, or it can be if you, if you work it the right way. Um, for, in order for tourism really to survive, it has to address its environmental footprint. So it's economic. So I think businesses yeah. are starting to do it, um, but most of them are at the start of that journey. Nick, the concept of ecotourism, it was actually a really hot topic before COVID and everything. And I remember you were going all over the place, including up in Donegal, where I met you, to talk about this idea. Do you think it's been abandoned now that we're all kind of desperate to get on the move again? Um, well, there is certainly a determination from the travel and tourism industry to kickstart things, to recover, to really try to um, build back. But I think there has been an absolute sea change in uh, opinion on what tourism should look like post-pandemic compared to pre-pandemic. But I think um, to answer your question, yeah, there has definitely been a big shift. 
And of course, everybody wants to go back uh, in, in some respects. Um, many economies depend very, very heavily on tourism. And so it's a very important industry, but there is a growing recognition that, um, that the kind of tourism we want post-pandemic should look very different. And from the leisure side, that's changed just as much. We see people seeking much, much longer trips, uh, ready to embrace uh, different forms of travel, to go a little bit slower, if that means uh, a more kind of beneficial uh, impact um, or, or reducing the impact, and being really conscious about um, the kind of experiences uh, that can actually generate something really positive, even for those that travel, uh, making sure that's more fulfilling and more meaningful, but also for the communities, the people they engage with, and just being a little bit more uh, socially conscious and engaged uh, when they travel. So, I mean, we've talked about this for a long time, the need for slow travel and to maybe not fly instead of, you know, and to, to take the ferry or, or you take sustainable methods of travel for your tourism. But are you actually seeing a movement toward this? Are you seeing evidence of this kind of added value travel or is this still just a concept? Absolutely. So I think the, the thing to really understand is that over a period of, I would say, around five years, We've seen, uh, we've seen a growing interest in sustainability, a deepening of our understanding of the issues around sustainability, the impact of our activities. And crucially, it's now moved into a point where sustainability is not just something that we should be driven to do and that we're aware of, but it's something that's increasingly becoming a competitive factor. And I think this is a really exciting tipping point because we have now an opportunity to really build on that. And I think this is also where there is a danger as well. So it's really important that we, uh, that we educate and that we work really, really closely with industry to make sure that uh, in reflecting the demand, we really, really integrate and respond to that demand in, um, in, in a very authentic and, and genuine way. And that we follow um, different frameworks and, and different um, organizations that can support that change towards a more sustainable uh, tourism industry or more sustainable business, we really take that very seriously. So when we talk about ecotourism or sustainable tourism in Ireland, Siobhan, I think we really often ignore this big elephant in the room that most tourists have to fly to get here. And and actually, if the global aviation sector were a country, it would rank sixth in the world when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. So with your expertise working with aviation over the last decade, is there a possibility that, that aviation might be able to do their fair share in addressing the climate challenge, or is that just off the table? You know, um, you're correct, uh, Cara. I, I mean, I think the aviation sector has been very clever and very successful at, at uh, managing to stay away from the table and, and distance themselves somewhat from, you know, the Paris agreements and various agreements that require, you know, real action in, in the area of environment. Um, but building on some of the things here that, you know, Nick has talked about, you know, the trends that Nick talks about in tourism are also true, you know, in the aviation industry. So, you know, um, corporate customers, the voice of the, uh, the individual customer and the passenger, um, you know, this now, you know, is getting, you know, it, it, it's driving this, this paradigm shift, if you like, you know, that the whole focus on or interest in ESG, this environmental, social and governance is no longer just a fad, right? It's becoming mainstream. So the aviation industry is understanding for competitive reasons, you know, to be, um, you know, that competitive factor, their reputation, um, even access to finance in the future, they need to get on board. Um, and in fact, they have, right? The aviation industry itself signed a declaration, if you like, um, over the last 12 months from the airports to the airlines, um, the aircraft manufacturers, and they have committed to the flight net zero concept, right? So that's a game changer in the aviation industry. And I mean, obviously these are, we're in business. So, you know, passenger growth is still a target, uh, you know, 10 billion passengers by 2050. That will be a huge ask of the aviation industry you know, if we are to, to reach that net zero commitment by, by 2050. So what technology um, is really there to be able to reach such an ambitious target when aviation is so dependent on fossil fuels? Well, there's there's four main pillars that we see. So, you know, technology has been always the cornerstone of aviation's um, uh, ability to address 
carbon or carbon emissions. So new aircraft, you know, replacing existing aircraft with some of the newer models, you get straight away 25% or 25% benefits. And um, some of the newer models of aircraft and some of the exciting things that are coming down the road are using electric technology. So battery technology, um, they're not where we need to be um, for the larger aircraft today, but certainly they can address the, the less than 500 miles. Um, moving towards more renewable energy and green hydrogen, that will bring in play as being able to address maybe the longer haul and the longer distance aircraft, which of course has the higher emissions. Um, operational improvements, you know, if we can do our air traffic management better than we're doing today, manage our waste on aircraft, um, the even airspace, we could get, go get governments talking to each other and manage airspace efficiencies better, we can get three to five percent emission benefit there. But the big, the big one, right, and the nearer term and more medium term option that, uh, that the whole industry, governments, industry are all moving towards now is in the area of alternative fuels. So sustainable aviation fuel, you know, the technology is there. It's just about the economics. How do we ramp production um, so that we can replace existing fossil fuel with this new, more sustainable options? So biofuels, synthetic fuels, and ultimately green hydrogen. I'm really curious to, to hear from all of you. And I will start with Roisin here. Now that tourism is coming back and, and you know, we're all dying to, to get on the move. How do you see our experience changing so that we travel more sustainably? I mean, I think what we see is, I mean, first of all, the research is there to say that consumers, both consumers and business customers want to see these changes. Um, so it's so important for the tourism industry to get on board and make the changes at their end. So I think what you're going to see is this gradual move towards sustainability. Um, I mean, for example, what we have discovered is all the customers that are coming to us, they don't really know where to start. They want to do the right thing, but they don't really know where to start. So all these tourism businesses and the first thing we really encourage them to do, and it sounds a little bit boring, but is to write a sustainable tourism policy and we help them do that. And when they have that and they publish it, you know, it starts to hold themselves to account and it means that their customers can engage with them. And we're, what we encourage businesses to do is not to set themselves up for a fall by, oh, we're so sustainable, and then people can come and pick them apart. It's more tell the truth and engage your customer in the journey. And uh, it was, Nicholas was talking about customers wanting to be involved in more meaningful tourism products. And I think that is absolutely true. That trend, it, you know, it's completely intermingled with this journey towards sustainability that hopefully the planet is on. Um, so it's that customers and tourists wanting to get more engaged in the local community and know that they are doing less damage. Um, so I think that's the trend you're going to see. So it's, it's engage your customer. Don't be afraid of them um, if you're a tourism business and get them involved in, in as much local activity as they can. Um, that they're the kind of trends that we 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 really see. It. I mean, it's across the tourism industry globally. Um, you'll see all the all the tourist boards are marketing those kind of truly engaged with the locals uh, experiences. Nick, would you agree with Roisin, or are you seeing other trends? One hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the demand is there. The demand is only increasing. Um, the industry, I think, is has has been really suffering. I think that's really important to say with the pandemic. It's Tourism has been hit harder than anyone else. So obviously the most important thing for most businesses is getting back on their feet and, and getting their finances and getting the business into a good kind of point of equity. But, you know, we have a responsibility to work together, to work collectively as an industry and to bring together a really wide uh, network of different partners who can help with this transition because it's a long transition. It's not something that we can train people on and then next year they will be sustainable. Um, yeah, as, as we've just heard, it's really important to set out your intentions uh, and to start by being held accountable to those, but also to be honest, to completely understand how important it is to avoid uh, any sort of greenwashing. And if you're starting in not such a great place to be able to be honest about that and set out the pathway that you hope to make uh, to transition to um, yeah, a, more, a more sustainable, a greener business 
Siobhan, uh, Nick mentioned the urgency, you know, that this has to be a long plan and everything. But the reality is that this is this is an urgent crisis. Do you very briefly think that the aviation sector in their panic to get back to business will actually take on board the urgency of the climate crisis this year? The improvements and the changes that can happen in aviation is not overnight, right? It takes time. But certainly I'm more optimistic than I've ever been that I've seen, you know, not just words, I've seen the aviation industry and, and the stakeholders, if you say, widen and broaden. I've seen them put money and huge investment towards, you know, sustainable aviation fuel infrastructure required for it, you know, and, and the carbon emissions and, and driving governments to change. So I'm more optimistic than I've ever been um, in terms of aviation's commitment to doing that. And I think, you know, in terms of what Roisin is talking about here and Nicholas, in, in terms of tourism, you know, some of the technology that's, you know, you know, the smaller aircraft, commuter aircraft and these new electrical vertical takeoff um, type aircraft that are coming on board in the next five to 10 years, you know, what they can bring in terms of, you know, helping us reimagine connectivity in, in between regional communities. And the wider world, I, I think we just, you know, it opens up a whole new box of tools for us, you know, as we look at sustainable travel and sustainable tourism. So watch this airspace, I guess. My thanks to Nick Hall from the Digital Tourism Think Tank, Siobhan Dolan Clancy of SDC Business Consulting and Roisin Finley of Sustainable Travel Ireland for helping us all plan those post-COVID holidays with a little more care for the planet. Now, just a reminder that in a few minutes, we're going to be talking to the happiest twins in Ireland, Dave and Steve Flynn of The Happy Pair, about their green life. But first, with live Live events finally opening up across the country, and and yet we're in this new post-COVID world that's embraced virtual events. One of my favorite comedians, Cullum O'Regan, is here to give his insights on where live entertainment may be headed. Hi, Cullum. Hello, Cara. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. We've been talking to experts about traveling more sustainably now that we're back on the move. And I'm just wondering, do you think that we've changed our attitudes to travel and tourism in this post-COVID world? Well, I've been thinking about this and I wonder if there's one keyword, the meaning of which has changed over the last uh, two, two years. And it's the word, maybe two words, the word luxury and expectations. I don't know whether it's the same among your listeners, but having had so much experiences uh, being off limits for two years, my expectations of a good time are on the floor. So I, I like I think that maybe we will be glad with less, uh, particularly in the area of luxury and what we define as luxury, because we have been at home for so long. So purely just being anywhere at all <laughs> would actually would actually be good enough. I remember the first time I stayed in a hotel uh, during one of the relaxations, I was just pleased at the opportunity to use a different toilet you know so I'm, I'm wondering I wonder can we harness that the idea that we don't need luxury and I'm not talking about necessarily eco lodges up in the trees or anything like that I'm just talking about the need for that wasteful certain percentage of a holiday which is just oh we need to show them a good time so let's make sure there's individually wrapped chocolates hidden in the sink you know I I, I think we can just absolutely emphasize the experience of being somewhere. And again, this is, you know, this notwithstanding the arguments of how you get there and the carbon footprint of all that, but at least could we trim luxury that we've found doesn't matter, that what we want actually all along is to be somewhere or to be with people or to see a thing and not necessarily to have everything wrapped in uh, velour. Yeah, so more experiences and less stuff, I guess. As someone who was quite involved in that whole live event industry before the pandemic, and of course you had to pivot, quote unquote, pivot like everyone yeah. else, um, do you think that the nature of your own work has changed as a result? We're in an interesting phase now. So I did manage to do stuff online. It is very much, to use an analogy from a different area of sustainability, a bit of a meat substitute. <laughs> so when you're doing gigs online, it's like biting into that first corn chicken nugget and going, no, it's not much worse than, <laughs> than a bad chicken nugget. And so you, you definitely, again, keyword is expectations. I had expected online gigs to be devoid of any atmosphere, but you get a lot if you put in a lot, if you make the effort, you make the effort to connect so the online gigs did keep us going. And crucially, 
whether they're comedy or information based, because uh, we do our story slam as well too. Like access is a huge thing. Like people who have extra needs, like use wheelchairs or or crutches, or or get tired, you know, have mobility scooters. All that, like they have been locked out of many places forever um, because they're sort of the silent the silent group who don't get considered. So they got access, you know, they should, des they deserve far more access, but the online interlude, there was some more access and a slightly, very slightly leveled one area of the playing field. And having said that, you know, I did a gig this week and there is nothing like that live experience. So in the mode we're in at the moment, we're in this kind of, oh, we just need to get back out. But I think, it will also settle down into more hybrid gigs where there is the ability to stream, you know, and be there in person. I suppose a Rubicon has been crossed because if you proposed to anyone, you know, years ago that there would be online elements to the She Bean gig, they'd go, what? You know, we don't have the internet, but it's something has changed. Yeah. I don't know what the future shape will look like, but I really want people to go to stuff as well, too, because we've had people loudly proclaim how they've missed going to things uh no stuff's on if you feel uh safe and you're not vulnerable health wise put your money where your mouth is and not just for the big name off the telly you know go to stuff and i really uh, now is the opportunity that initial rush of enthusiasm. i urge people to go and take a chance on stuff well you know i was I mean? relieved to hear that you haven't entirely given up on live events and you actually have yeah. a new show happening uh this coming week on february 16th and 17th in oh. the smock alley theater in dublin on a subject near and dear to my heart so why don't you tell us more about it oh how did you find out about that <laughs> this is taking me little by birdie told me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i am taking tentative steps this year, Evan, in how to talk about the giant planet-wide crisis of climate and biodiversity and how to talk about it in a comedy sense. So next Wednesday and Thursday, 16th and 17th in the Smock Alley, is my steps into that, how to talk about trying to become more engaged with what's going on, but in a way that doesn't overwhelm us with despair because you can soak up all the bad news and some people have an incredible capacity for it there are actual carbon sinks in their ability to process the bad news there's a lot of us in the middle who are just trying to get a handle and this so i'm trying to do some stand up around that area around processing it and trying to do something without succumbing to despair and I hope people will laugh. So you're calling it Climate Warrior, and it's a trip around the brain of an yeah. ordinary, everyday hypocrite who tries to battle the incoming feelings yeah. of despair with tiny acts. And this new show is Wednesday and Thursday night, February 16th and 17th at the Smock Alley Theatre with tickets on sale at smockalley.com. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it myself. Thank you. You're putting your money where your mouth is. Right, thanks very absolutely. much. Absolutely. <laughs> My thanks to Cullum O'Regan for his amusing anecdotes and being back on the live event stage. Up next, Ireland's celebrity vegan twins from the happy pair, Dave and Steve Flynn, will be telling me about their green lives. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world. For all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, Ireland's happiest celebrity vegan twins, Dave and Steve Flynn, from The Happy Pair, join us on Down to Earth. Hi, guys. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thanks, Millie. It's and great lovely. to be in person. And thank you. Really nice. Like, yeah, yay! it's so weird. And it uh, thanks for all the great treats that you brought in, too. So it, you guys started The Happy Pair kind of fruit and veg shop in 2004, and it's grown to this big vegan lifestyle movement I think you were really ahead of your time in that it's a huge thing now globally I have to ask when you started this journey was it just for health reasons or was there a, an animal rights element or an environmental element in in your choice to kind of pursue this lifestyle I'd say mine was purely selfish it was like like most things you're kind of curious about I think at the time I was 21 and it was like how do I get more does it give me will I get more energy will I feel better will I and at the time I was quite interested in spirituality so it was kind of going okay if I eat more vegetables will I become a more spiritual enlightened being you know it was that kind of the irony of that so it was definitely 
um, selfish reasons to start with. Were and you following suit? Yeah, follow very similar. Example? Initially it started that, but then the further you looked into kind of the philosophy behind it, and it, it kind of made sense in so many different facets. You were like, okay, I came in for health, but like it makes sense about the planet, makes sense about the environment, makes sense about farming, makes sense about animals. Okay, and really connects with me spiritually too. This is pretty cool, you know that way. So yeah. although you enter through one door, all the other doors made a lot of sense too, and really kind of resonated. At know? what stage did you start to realize that there were these environmental benefits to to a vegan lifestyle? Uh, pretty early on, like at the time, there wasn't the internet. Like this is two thousand and one, so it was reading books. Like you know, there wasn't much online about it, or there wasn't much access to being online. So it was, it really was reading books. Like I remember and carrying books around me and reading them for a few years and, and, and kind of the library I used to go to the library I remember when I first Weird. went kind of vegan and vegetarian I started first I was in Whistler a cool ski resort where it was all parties and this and I used to get into the library every day after school and read books about vegetarian and how to cook with vegetables and wow. I think I think from reading we realised that like politics literally starts in your plate and that the world which we kind of really espoused or liked liked the idea of I want to work towards creating a happier, healthier, more connected world, you realise that our food choices have such a massive impact on every aspect of society. You our globalised food system, even if you look at, like when we first started the Happy Pear uh, as a fruit and veg shop, we thought, oh, we're, we're just a small little green grocer. We're, we're not part of this globalised food system. And we used to go into Dublin Fruit Market here in Smithfield every day there'd be farmers bringing in their produce and they'd kind of wholesale it out to different shops and people who'd sell it. And over the course of the 10 years that we used to go in every there, it massively changed as the globalised food system started to come more. Like, you know, 40-foot lorries would come in and they'd take off pallets of oranges and literally they'd all be waxed. They'd all look the same. It was almost like there was no touch of it coming from the earth. And you kind of slowly over the number of years, we've seen that kind of disconnection and that almost it's gone from this smaller, more localised food system to this globalised food system. Glo- globalised mono, mono culture, which you know, this all sounds doom and gloomy, but it has gone very mono culture and mono and at the, and at, and at the same time if you look at our personal health a lot of us you know are suffering with there's a lot more of a rise of autoimmune diseases a lot more deficiencies in terms of our uh, microbiomes and as a result of you know we've been monocropping vegetables and we have less bacterial biodiversity in our own microbiomes which is a collection of um microorganisms and gut bugs in your bacteria in your gut and, uh, and that's where 70% of your immune system cells are based. Wow. So that's one thing I wanted to talk to you about because I did your online cooking course, your vegan cooking course a couple of years ago, and I loved it. And it opened up this whole world of recipes I could use and, and, and the ability, I think, to get away from animal products, which was great, like chia eggs, amazing for baking and everything. Um, but I did wonder that if we were to have like a local diet in Ireland, we would probably have to eat a lot of dairy and beef because that's what we grow here. So there was this kind of contradiction between a lot of the ingredients which are imported, you know, things like avocados or plant-based milks and this need to eat local. And I'm just wondering how you reconcile that because you do seem to understand that we do need a more local diet. Yeah, I think I think if you're looking at kind of the hierarchy of impact in terms of the environment, the, sing- the University of Oxford did a study in 2018 to try to find out what's the single biggest thing you could do for the climate. Many people think it's not flying or it's having solar panels or no, it's an electric car. I need a Tesla. Then I will be super sustainable. But ultimately, they found out the single biggest thing the individual can do, and this encompassed 90% of the food chain, was to eat a vegan diet or eat a more plant-centric diet. So literally, politics does start in the plate. So it's not about being vegan or vegetarian. I think it's about moving the dial and to try to eat more plant-based. And to answer your question more directly about um, local, I I think as much local as one can. And I think if you look at the, the direct impact of, say, animal produce, say, beef, and you compare it to, say, avocados, avocado still uses, like, like four times less environmental impact, although it is kind of shipped halfway across the world, the direct environmental impact on the on the environment and its carbon emissions is significantly less. So I think plant-based is the first place to start, ideally local, ideally organic if you can, and ideally even if you have to go one step further, regenerative if we're getting really particular in terms of the ideals. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately we're all doing our best, so I think it's, you know... And, and even, even to bring it back to ourselves... Yeah. 
sorry, I'm being selfish here. But uh, like we've realized this over the last, I think, 15 years ago. I remember the pair of us doing an experiment and we kind of said, okay, we're only going to eat Irish for this month. We're only eating Irish food. I've had enough. We're going to make a stand for it. And I think it was like June or something. And there was only like tomatoes and onions and potatoes. And like after our kind of 25th meal of spunion, which was potatoes and onion, you know, we just got sick and was like, I've had enough of this. Like, I don't, I, let's just eat something else or whatever. So, and and realizing that we've actually just, um, this week we've signed to buy four acres of farm, of farm. So we're starting a horticulture, a local farm to really kind of use it as a model. Because as you said, like Irish farmers, like we're synonymous with beef and with dairy, but there isn't much incentive for horticulture and so we really want to lead this example. Yeah, and, and to create a model where we can kind of teach other people and connect it. Like modern day society, so much of it is disconnected. And I think, again, at the center of any economy is food because if we don't eat as humans, we don't continue to survive. And I think we're very disconnected. Very few of us know where our food came from. There was a time when in society when you knew who grew all the food you ate. Like when I go to Poland, my wife is Polish and we go uh, to to stay with our folks there and they literally, they live in a little farm, they're self-sufficient, they grow all their own veg, they pickle everything, they preserve everything, nothing is wasted. And there's a word in Polish, kupiona, which means, you know, bought and they'd use it like that was bought as in that's lesser quality. And, you know, in modern day society, very few of us know where our food is coming from. There's a disconnect to the land. So, so the idea with the farm is that we'll have, a, you know, it'll be linked, we'll get a hundred families to be part of it and they'll get a weekly box and they come up to the farm once a month or, and really actually be connected to it so they can actually see that vegetables grow on the ground and yeah. you like be part of the journey and realise that there's, the food is grown here. This is your, you know. Oh, sign me up. That sounds yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah, in Greystones apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just on the outside of Greystones. Fantastic. You mentioned about being disconnected from food, and I also heard in your own podcast you talked about being disconnected from nature, and you think that that's part of the problem. So tell me more about how you think we can reconnect to nature, reattach to nature in some way. Well, I'd say first and foremost, we are nature. Like I think we are nature, and we forget that because we most live in cities. If you look at the Oxford definition of nature, as egotistical we define it everything that happens outside of the human experience whereas we're evolved mammals so it's like we are fundamentally intricately linked to nature we are a part of it sorry to go yeah and I was just going to say that there's we are so dependent on nature yet we kind of see ourselves you know as a these are the cultural conditions we see ourselves above it we are the dominant force we own nature but the reality is that like nature's hurting and we're kind of been exploiting it for a long number of years and I think our deep down at a deeper level a lot of us realize this and there is, you know, there is record levels of um, depression and disconnection and all these type of things amongst our, you know, our societies at large. So I think nature is really, it's it's a place like there's these things called fractals even in nature, which are small little, you know, uh, shapes in nature that when we when we see them with our eyes, it releases you know, it, it calms us down. It it reduces our cortisol levels. It helps us become more connected. And I guess that's the nature with the and the nature of nature, um, and particularly food. Food is a, a really basic way. Like if you think back a hundred years ago, most of us grew our own food, and we were directly connected to it. And obviously, we didn't have Wi-Fi, and we didn't have cell phones, and we didn't have you know lovely heated houses, which we do now. But I think you know, there's maybe there's a middle ground where being connected with growing our food or things like this yeah. can... Yeah. And I think, sorry, just to build on that, I, I think in terms of nature, so much of modern day society, we've gone from being human beings to human doings. You know, society is built on progress and this kind of, you know, caffeine-fueled, adrenaline-pumped society where we're all trying to achieve and live our best life and yay! And there's kind of a deficiency of presence almost within us all. And I think... If anyone, say, for example, we're right here in Dublin City, if you walk out, there's a pulse of it. Whereas if you go out to nature somewhere quiet and calm, there's just a feeling of ease and suddenly it connects into the human, the sense of human being as is the human doom. I think that's a huge part of where we all find connection, meaning, happiness, significance. And we remember that we're 
fully interdependent. I think through that, suddenly there's less egotism and suddenly it's more we as opposed to I. Yeah, you also (laughs) mentioned, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, that sometimes, you know, you're aware of these big planetary crises, but but you get distracted. I think the word you used was distracted by life and, and you start to forget about them. And I was wondering, are you know, is that kind of, a way of staying happy is to sort of just get distracted and not be aware that these things are hap- are happening? Or how do you kind of reconcile that in your head, you know, the kind of not getting distracted from these environmental issues and still engaging with them? Yeah, I think it's hard because, you know, the society is set up for where we're busy, like to pay the rent and pay the bills and just keep the whole car going. You know, the, like, and all of us are just, just about keeping above water, um, and I think there's almost a disconnect between happiness and meaning. And at the moment, a lot of us are looking for short-term happiness at the expense of meaning, as in, you know, um, I'll have my three glass of wine, I'll have my chocolate treat, and I'll have all these type of things which give me short-term happiness, but not ne- might necessarily lead to long-term meaning. And a lot of us kind of are, you know, there there is deeper senses of kind of dissatisfaction or realising that there must be more to life. And I think maybe part of this process of what's happening now is almost like, we're being pushed to one extreme to kind of almost wake us up to realize that, okay, well, how do we better, how do we address these big issues which are going on before like they become fundamentally urgent? And I think we're quite close to the stage now where they are becoming more and more urgent. And I thought if anyone hasn't watched it, there was that movie, Don't Look Up. I thought it was a very good, ironic, satirical reflection on what's going on. It was a real black comedy, but it was very well represented of what's going on in terms of the climate today. Yeah, absolutely. I I noticed that you've you've been quite honest about the fact that you like to get away from Ireland and see the sun. Mm. And sure everybody does. And I think now that, you know, things are opening up again, people are going to be doing that more and more. Today on the show we were talking about ecotourism and and where that whole area will go. And I'm curious now that you've you've really explored the climate crisis in your own podcast and you're much more aware of, you know, the impact of flying and everything on the climate crisis do you think you've you're going to change your behavior at all now that we're kind of able to move around again i'd love to say that like the high idealist in me goes no we're only just staying in our 5k zone here but no no we love to travel so it's kind of like finding the middle ground and what is that what is the middle ground then for you I don't know. Like that's, I guess we're finding it out. Like I certainly got friends and our brother Dara for a number of years, he didn't fly at all. And we've got friends that don't fly and they just get trains and things like this. But to me, it feels a bit extreme for where I'm at right now. Maybe I'll get there. But right now, I think we're doing our best and really focusing on the food aspect and the many other aspects within it. And I think for like, yeah, like to talk about it ourselves, I think we've realized, I think progress rather than perfection. I think that's a kind of, we've been at, times in our life we've been kind of caught up with trying to be be the ideal and nothing but the ideal but you fall off the horse and we all do so I think it's focusing on little baby steps and I think for anyone listening who is really concerned about the climate I think a really simple starting point is just to try to eat more plant-based and just try to reduce your animal foods I think it, it it's a very simple basic step and it's progress rather than perfection and, it, and, if you get, and if you can get your influence your family to start getting on board with it or friends and try to get them more interested in that because food really is at, a, is at a core of it because it's you know it's central uh, you know in reforestation in deforestation in terms of you know, animal agriculture and ter- there's so many aspects of it. That- and if anyone listening who doesn't like to cook, um, we've loads of products in Super Value that are plant based. Do check them out, and they're kind of a lot of them are extremely healthy, and a lot of them, you know, there are some ones that are more aimed at flavor. I was going to say there's a, a lot in my bag now that you've brought with us that are from Super Value. I think really you should have been called the meaningful pair, maybe not the happy pair. But my thanks to Dave and Steve from the Happy Pair for their infectious happiness and for sharing your green lives with us today. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Russo. And of course, thank you all for listening. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcasts for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, it's not down to earth, but out to sea as we explore the world of offshore wind energy. But until then, stay curious. Down to Earth on Newstalk with Amundi, an asset manager working today for all our tomorrows.